The CLE Rocks podcast is brought to you by Wonderstruck Music Festival, taking place July 9th and 10th at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland, Ohio. This year's lineup features Vampire Weekend, Lumineers, All Time Low, and more than 20 other local, regional, and national acts. Get your tickets today at wonderstruckfest.com. Wonderstruck is coming to Cleveland. For this two-day music festival, see top artists including the Lumineers, Vampire Weekend, and more. Get your tickets now at wonderstruckfest.com. Hey guys, this is Troy L. Smith, reporter for Cleveland.com and host of CLE Rocks. On Wednesday, April 13, 2022, we hosted another one of our live podcast events at the Music Box Supper Club in Cleveland's Flats. Listen as an all-star panel of local music historians share their stories about the legendary music venues of Northeast Ohio. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Really appreciate it. The support for these events uh, has been phenomenal. Um, and we got we had nice weather earlier in the day. I think my weather app said the rain's supposed to stop in 25 minutes. So let's hope. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is CLE Rocks Presents. Uh, this event we've been doing since the end of last year. I think our first event was October. We took a break, picked things up in January. Um, just to get a little business out of the way, we're big time now, so we have a sponsor. And uh, the event is brought to you by the Wonderstruck Music Festival, which takes place July 9th and 10th at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland. Um, all right, man. Okay, okay. I just wish the sponsor was here to hear that. You know, you know, no, um, it's, it's their biggest lineup yet. You have Vampire Weekend, Lumineers, Michael Franti and Spearhead, uh, 20 other acts from around the country, some local acts as well. You get your tickets at wonderstruckfest.com. And if you get them today, they're cheaper than if you wait a month from now because there's a tier system. It's a fun event. I will be there. It's a family event, great food, drinks. My three young children will be running around so I can get a break from them and get my sanity back. Okay? Yeah, they're, they're lovely. Um, <laughs> now, the reason we're here, CLE, CLE, CLE Rocks presents No Sleep Till Cleveland. And the focus here is the legendary music venues of Cleveland from the 1950s, 60s, until, you know, whatever we can get to in about an hour or so. Um, but I was born in 1984, so you probably don't want to hear my recollections of many of these venues. That's why I brought these three awesome guests with me. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead you and introduce them. You mean old people? <laughs> I like to think, Thanks, Dave. you know, legend, you know, veterans of the local concert scene. That's, that's a better word. All right, cool. Um, to my right, we have author, speaker, Cleveland music historian, Deanna Adams, give it up for her. All right, so many of you, you know, know Deanna, of course, and have been to some of her events but, and read her books. And her books include, or nonfiction books, uh, Rock and Roll and the Cleveland Connection, Cleveland Rock and Roll Roots, and Cleveland's Rock and Roll Venues. Um, and you have some of those available out Yes, out I do. Okay. Yes. Which ones do you have out there? Uh, all three of those. Okay. Yes. So you can stop out. Oh, I'm sorry, not the first one. Not the first one. Just two. Just two. And my fiction. Okay. (laughs) They're rock and roll fiction though too. So. Okay. Cool. So you can stop out after the event. You can talk to Deanna, buy her books. Okay. So thank you, Deanna, for coming. Next up, uh, my man who needs no introduction. He's been here at the Music Box several times. uh, Veteran Cleveland TV TV and radio reporter Michael Shevsky. Thank you very much. Welcome back. 
Uh, Mike's got a lot of books. Um, he probably wrote one at the table while we we're waiting to come up here. Uh, <laughs> but his books include the reason. Supposed to be private. <laughs> the, the reason he's perfect for this event because you know, along with his wife, they wrote Smoky, Sweaty, Rowdy, and Loud Tales of Cleveland's legendary rock and roll landmarks. The By the way, that's not a description of the authors. No. <laughs> The book, if you if you haven't read the book, and is it available out front as well? Yes, well, great Christmas present, not too early to shop. The details on the events that happen at these venues is tremendous, and he's interviewed everyone who knows everything about these venues, so tremendous book. Pick it up if you get a chance before you leave. Uh, and last but not least, Susan Sendez. <laughs> You're not, she's not written a book, but she could because she's worked everywhere from the Agora to the Odeon, Tower City Amphitheater, currently box office manager at Live Nation. No. No? Where are you at now? Uh, I did make it through COVID. Women of a certain age. Come on. They're lost, though. They're Veterans lost. Veterans of a certain age. She's being recorded, you know. <laughs> But we can still hear you on the radio. Yeah. And actually, I'm at the MGM. Okay. You got to get in the mic. You got to put the mic. I'm actually at the MGM. Oh, okay. The box office over there. Awesome. And I still get to work with my local Live Nation people. So it's the best of both worlds. And also, just continually adding the venues that you've worked at in Cleveland. It's a long list. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and I was going through my calendar, <laughs> and I forgot about some of the places that they would send me when there wasn't a box office person or they needed somebody from their side of things there. So it was, it was a fun flip through some of the calendars. Um, you know, normally when we start, you know, after we do the introductions, we start with an event that's tied to, you know, we did David Bowie, we did Tina Turner, and we start with an event. Here, you know, obviously the format's gonna be a little different, <clears throat> and I kinda wanted to do a bit of an icebreaker, uh, and I'll start with Sue, because I just spoke to you. Tell me, what was your first job in the concert industry? It was at the Agora. I always thought it was January 24th, 1990, but it was January 12th, so you were six. <laughs> and I was, I was working was, at WHK. Still five, actually. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I was working at WHK full-time. That was my first full-time radio gig out of college. But I got done at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's like, wh what do you do with the rest of your day? And I'd worked at the YMCA for a long time, and I had quit there, and I called the dearly departed great friend of all of ours, Johan, and I said, uh, can, can, I, um, can I deliver something for you? Because he liked his pot. And uh, I said, can I deliver something for you? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, deliver. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, when you go over there, I could do stuff like that. And he's like, no, you cannot. And I said, sure, I can. And he's like, no, you can't. He's like, why are you even asking me this? And I said, because I'm bored. I'm done with work at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I need something to do. And he goes, well, George White, and I didn't know who George White was, White, he, had, he ran the front row for a lot of years. He had recently come over to the Agora at 5000 Euclid Avenue, and he was going to open things up. And he goes, we need somebody to answer the phone. Come and answer the phone on Friday. And I, I, so I got there at like 1.30, literally just drove down Euclid Avenue. And I can tell you what I wore that day. I can tell you the people <laughs> I met that day because it was a pivotal day that literally changed my life. Because I used to go to a ton of shows. I mean, a ton of shows. 
a ton. Where my mother was like, where was the money that you made this summer to pay for your books? And I'm like, eh, I went to Blossom a lot. So, um, but it was, it w to, to be there is the other side of it, from the other side. I remember I walked out that night and I was just like, ugh, I was in heaven. It was fantastic. And it started off as just to come in on this day and this day. And then it turned into a, well, come in like three days a week. And basically, I was doing a full-time job and then another part-time job that was, I looked at my calendars, like I said, and I was like, oh, my God, how did I do this? But you can do it when you're 24 and 26 and stuff like that. But that was, that was it. And at the Agora, at that time, Belkin was like the exclusive booker. So George would book some shows, but the Belkins did most of the shows. So I met them there. And that's, you know, they turned me on to, why don't you come and work at the Rib Cook-Off and this and that and the other. And, you know, we need help as a production assistant at the Coliseum, come and do that. So that's what I started doing. And then when I went to the Odeon in 95, Belkin bought it like six months after I got there. So I stayed with them and that's how I got in. Deanna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hit you with the hardest question, uh, I think, uh, or maybe not. Um, you know, in your books, you talk about, you know, the history of Cleveland and music, and, and if you read all of your books, it takes you through that journey. I'm curious, personally, take me back to your first concert experience. <laughs> what was it? Well, the Moondog Coronation Party. <laughs> <laughs> the Moondog. No, I'm, I'm kidding, folks. Okay. That was 1952. Uh, I wasn't conceived yet. Um, most memorable concert, I have to say, Rolling Stones, Akron Rubber Bowl, 1972, um, CV Wonder opened it up, and I was dead front and center. I was 17 years old, and it was like, yeah, like God was there. It was great. It was, it was very memorable. Um, Mike, so, okay, in your books, you, both you and Deanna, you have yep. these books that take you through the, you know, pretty much every venue that's memorable in Cleveland history. Um, and I know the answer to this, but, you know, I want you to talk on it. You both start at the same place. And talk to me about why you start your book, where you started, and why that's, you know, the most important moment in, in not just Cleveland music history, but one of the most important moments We're in rock and roll. We're talking about the Moondog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It, I think a lot of people forget that because we were sort of, uh, well, we were still a major city back in the early 1950s, and we had this emerging radio disc jockey because... TV was coming into its own at that time, and we right after World War II, we had a separate culture. The youth culture was separating from the older people. They weren't going to sit around and watch TV with mom and dad, and because programming from radio is now moving over to TV, what are we going to do with these radio waves? So all of a sudden, they said, wait a minute, we've got an idea. It's cheaper. Let's put on disc jockeys. So Alan Freed eventually makes his way up to Cleveland, along with some other people like Pete Mad Daddy Myers, if any, anybody remembers him. And uh, they said, um, little by little, it was such a primitive business back then. We had Alan Freed doing things like classical music. He was calling sports games, things like that on WAKR. He comes up here, and uh, you had Leo Mintz over at Record Rendezvous, who, by the way, was traveling all the way to Columbus a couple times a week before the freeways to pick up used records to sell here. And uh, he, he said, listen, I'll give you some stuff. He said, we got kids here. Black and white kids, he says, it's interracial. We got a great crowd here, and they're listening to black music. I'll, I'll sponsor your show. So it took off. And right after World War II, keep in mind, I tell people, if you think it's conservative now, anybody here, I doubt if anybody here was rem would remember after World War II, but we were ultra-conservative. If you were a white Protestant male, you had it made. Other than that, you're on your own. 
And we were always looking for something to unite us, okay? So, I mean, uh, they were looking at, you know, comic books that were causing juvenile delinquency, even UFOs. But rock and roll, that's the devil that comes into your kid's bedroom. They're listening to it under the pillow right there. We have to stop this rock and roll. But that was what made it so attractive is because, hey, this is our culture. And, you know, we're out in the cars listening to this. Well, next thing you know, Lou Platt and a couple other people and Leo Mintz decide they're going to put on the Moondog Coronation Ball. Not the first Moondog Ball, but they're going to crown uh, the king of Moondoggers, right, Alan Freed. Uh, little by little, they started selling tickets, and they sold it out. So I guess that what, what happened was they actually went to Leo Mintz, and they said, hey, we've got enough to, to sell out a second show. And he said, that's great. Let's do it. I'm going to Florida with my son, Stu, because it was his birthday. Uh, well, they said, okay, they ordered more tickets, and they said, How, what do you want these tickets to say? The same as the first. Problem is they didn't put second show on it. So they sold out the second show, and everybody thought, we're here for the first show. Next thing you know, everybody's trying to get in the front doors. One song in, they called it, and this was exactly what rock and roll needed to give it that instant reputation. So all of a sudden, Cleveland's back on the map. And the funny thing was that... The, the plane dealer and the press didn't report on it very much. But the call and post, because a lot of them were the you know, rhythm and blues acts, they were saying, what is this? Are these kids rock and rollers? Are they moondoggers? What is this? So all of a sudden, we had a great reputation, and it just took off from there. And that was, you know, it's, it's just a lot of people, this might have passed by some people, but 70 years ago, you know, last month. Yeah. So it was, it was nice to look back at that event. That took place at Cleveland Arena. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's one of the few things <laughs> in terms of music that Cleveland Arena was known for. But going through your book, Deanna, it reminded me that Elvis had played a historic show there as well. So talk a little bit about why that show was so important. Not only because it was Elvis. Well, <laughs> and Elvis was just beginning. Well, he that wasn't the first visit that Elvis was. He, he came uh, 1950. Oh, now I can't think. Because uh, he was in 56 at the arena, 55. Um Brooklyn High, very good. Um, and and it was his first concert north of the Mason-Dixon line. And that's one thing about Cleveland, too. There was It brought uh, several artists. Cleveland was the first place that they came, that really, you know, got them started as far as, because the DJs were starting to play their music early on, like Bill Randall was playing, you know. Um, and Tommy Edwards, actually, was the one that started Elvis' songs. So, so it was very significant. Because the Moondog Coronation Ball, when that happened, it didn't last like a half hour. There was mass pandemonium because of the second. And I was thinking, didn't Alan Freed say, okay, second show? He knew he sold out the first show. The second show. He didn't exactly. have a box office wasn't manager. On the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, when you guys are talking about second show and not changing the ticket, I'm like, oh, yeah. And so the you know fire marshals you know closed them down, but uh, so of course it made the paper. That's the only time it, yeah. you know rock and roll, and that's why. Oh, it's like oh my God, you're never going to these. Well, the funny thing was, all of a sudden, I, you know, they called down to they, they knew something was going to happen, so they called down to to Leo in Florida. And he said, "Oh brother," he jumps on the plane. Took him all day to get up here, got into into a cab. He came up to the arena just as the riots happening, and he said, "This is on you." He went to uh, to Lou Platz and, and the other promoters. He said, "This is on your head." Take me back to the airport. So I went back to Florida. What? But still. Yeah. There's a great picture, too, of uh, there's a broken record, uh, dancing shoes, and and I'm assuming an empty bottle of whiskey that uh, one of the PD um, 
photographers took. And I just think that's rock and roll <laughs> right there. When you go through, you know, the 50s and the 60s, and we'll get to a lot of these venues, uh, Sue, I'm curious, when you started working at the Agora and you meet the Belkins and, you know, they go on to the Odeon stuff, obviously the Agora was the Agora at that point. Was there sort of, you know, working in the Cleveland concert industry, did you feel like you were part of a tradition and a legacy that, that meant a lot more? I think when I was doing it, no. I was well aware of the fact that it wasn't the original Agora. We were, you know, we were at, oh, you're at, you're, you're not, you're not at 24th. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, we're over here, you know, at 55th. But we were also very proud of the fact that that was an old WHK auditorium studio where the Beatles had their first, I think, radio interview on that stage, if I'm not mistaken. So we had that. And um, no, it was just, you know, and again, I've been thinking about this a lot leading into this. How on earth did anybody let a bunch of, like, we were all kids, you know, I used to think, like, some of these kids that I, I'm like, well, he was only 16, 17. I'm like, you were only 24. What did you know about this? You didn't know anything about this. How we were entrusted <laughs> to do what we were entrusted to do, I, I don't know how anybody let that happen. So I don't think we were so much um, thinking about making history or being part of it. We were just all having a great time. And we all became fast friends, and we worked hard, crazy hours and some of the things we, you know, had to do to get things done, but I don't think we ever thought that we were part of something other than, oh my God, guess who, you know, guess who we just booked kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, but no, in retrospect, it was, um, and again, in looking at the people that I got to work with and who are still my friends and some of the things that they've gone on to do, and I was thinking about it when you said about Cleveland and shows and how we really are, you know, a part of, you know, the bigger picture. There are so many people that came from the clubs and the production crews that worked here and started here who are just did the Super Bowl show or going out with Metallica. I mean, you don't realize the amount of people who are in some pretty interesting jobs that were, oh yeah, I started the Agora, or I started the Odeon, or whatever. So it's really fascinating. When we started doing this podcast, um, you know, it was about looking back at these memorable moments. And, it, and it's somewhat easy to, it's pretty easy to find people who went to Richfield Coliseum, then you get into the 80s. Mike, talk a little bit, you know, paint the concert scene of the 60s for me, because you do detail it very well in your book, because you have the British Invasion, you have the Beatles and Stones shows. Talk about what that was like to, in, in your research. You know, oddly enough, and I think, you know, certainly, you know, you, Sue, saw it at a more sophisticated level uh, and helped build it in that way. And Dee, you, with your research, I think you've seen it as well. It was still very primitive in the 1960s. I mean, the first concert I went to was at the Allen Theater, and the Allen Theater, what, what they booked it for, like two or three hundred bucks or something. It was Derek and the Dominoes, and with Eric Clapton, and people were just walking in, and it was like Swiss Swiss cheese. People walking in every entrance, things like that. I don't know. And you used to get your your tickets at like Man Talk, Cleveland Tucks, Burroughs. They, they really that's what that was the craziest thing. And I think I'll say this about the Belkins: they certainly made it a lot more sophisticated, and uh, along with guys like Bill Graham and people like that. They realize that this is a business, and let's make this as efficient as possible and as enjoyable as possible, but at the same time, let's direct it in the right way. By the 1970s, it had, uh, you weren't having as many small hall shows for the big acts that were playing three and four nights, well, like the Fillmore's. 
When the Woodstock hit, Bill Graham saw that and said, why am I booking the Who for five nights when I can get them for one night at Madison Square Garden and make the same kind of money? So it became a lot more sophisticated. So did the, uh, certainly the, um, you know, the amplifiers, you know, the sound systems and things like that. It became more of a business. It became a lot more sophisticated, though. That, that was the whole thing. But, you know, it was a lot more fun in the early days. Like the, the teen so. clubs. You know, you had, you know, uh, Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck playing at, you know, the Hullabaloo. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that and, and you, everyone was drinking pop and nobody cared about drinking alcohol because they, it was all about seeing the band. Well, you know, you bring up an important point. There's a guy out in the audience, Steve Trano. Where is Steve? There's Steve. Steve's over on WCSB, and he actually introduced me to Stan Kane, uh, who was running LaCave, if you remember LaCave. LaCave was like a tiny little room with mismatched chairs, and you might go in there and see Velvet Underground or something, and, you know, or Neil Young with Crazy Horse playing to 200 people. And you know, and you're saving up money to get like you know a buck thirty-five for a pitcher of beer or something. <laughs> yeah, really, that's what it was. And you know, like they'd make sandwiches right there in front of you. They, they'd run out to a deli and get some meat or something. It was a lot more community in that way too. It was not so much business, but more community. I think. Can't, I just want to mention because when you were talking about the Belkins and the uh, Bill Grahams oh, and yeah. the Don Laws and the people across the country, I'm working with a young gentleman who just turned twenty-four. And he's never been to a concert. He's working. He his sports is his thing. In all honesty, uh -huh. he's a lovely young man, and um, he went to his first show, I think, a couple months ago, at the House of Blues. But um, he made he made some comment like, um, "Oh, you know what is what is, you know?" He hears the names. He sees the names on the emails, but he doesn't. He's like he said something about like, "Oh, Michael Belkin." So he's the Booker. What does he do? And I said. Do me a favor. And I found a story on, and it's killing me that I don't remember the name of it, but um, just after Mike Belkin passed away, they released a movie at the uh, Chagrin Falls International, uh, International Film Festival, and it was the story of all of these independent promoters across the country. And, um, you know, I said, the Live Nation, I go, Live Nation is here because these people are here. So yes, it used to be, it's still fun, but it's not fun like it used to be. And it's lost, I think, a lot of its personality. And um, you know, that's what a lot of these young folks in the business, and, and I think, and I hate to say this, um, I work, I think, for people way high up who might, I go, have they ever been to a concert? You know, they're Moneyball guys, I, it is. And, and I get it. It's a business, and you can make money. I mean, Bill Graham wasn't a wasn't a poor guy. Oh, no, not really. So you know, I th and and it's now just all about. But anyway, I just you know, I don't even know why I wanted to say that. That's but yeah, I it was different. It has changed, and uh, sadly, you know, it's you have to almost teach these kids of a certain age about the history of it I and why we're working, where we're working, and how and how this all came about. Yeah. Well, there is the, like you know when you read you know especially you guys cover this well in your book, your books. Um, you know when you look at the '60s and you and it's from someone who's younger and you look and it's history being made and it's like I can't even wrap my head around. I think we ran a photo with one of our stories previewing this. I think it was Smokey Robinson and the Miracles at Leo's Casino. I think and I look at those venues or. Um, and you mentioned this in your book, Public Auditorium became a place where we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony once a year, but back in the day, you had 
the Beatles and the Stones and fans losing their minds, which leads to a rock and roll, you know, ban in the city. Or even I, there's a photo of Jimi Hendrix at Music Hall, I think, where they're touching it. You know, fans are trying to touch his feet. I mean, <laughs> it's like I, I talked to a woman who was a big Jimi Hendrix fan. She said she was at that show. She said, I wanted to touch his feet and a lot more, which was a... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, when, when Hendrix came out for one of three shows that he did in Cleveland, he did two at Music Hall, but he came out and somebody yelled, take off your hat. And he looked and said, take off your pants. <laughs> That's in one of the recordings. That, that is in the recording. There's, oh, is that right? There's people, if you go to YouTube's recording of the show, uh, good quality, and there's these people in the back yelling, take off your hat. I don't, yeah. I don't remember the, him, his response showing up. But well, there was also a bomb scare there, too. So right. they had a, but uh, later that night, he was at the Statler, there's nothing to do in Cleveland at that time, let's face it. you know, 1968, we're, we're not a hopping town at that point. So he said, what am I going to do? So he went down to Otto's Grotto, and there was a band called The Good Earth, and there was maybe 100 people there. He said, you guys mind if I sit in? <laughs> he said, have a seat, buddy. So that was his third show that night. It was in front of maybe 100 people at Otto's Grotto there at the Statler. So you mentioned, you know, I want to talk about the world-famous Agora. You mentioned, you know, working there and going to a lot of shows in general before that. How many shows did you go to at the Agora, would you say, before you started working there? <laughs> well, um, surprisingly enough, n not a lot. I, uh, I didn't have any older brothers or sisters to corrupt me in any sort of good way, unfortunately. And my parents were a little bit older when they had us. I have a younger brother. So there was a lot of, like, absolutely not. And um, so it, it, I didn't start – well, I will say this. We would we were allowed to go to shows at you know like front row was the first show, of for my and then we were allowed to go to Blossom and my mother would go drive I'm driving, I'll sit in the parents section you I won't sit by you and embarrass you but you know where I am in case you need me, and um, I didn't start going to clubs until I was probably like starting you know in college because I got into. Uh, you know, I could really uh, indulge in the alternative rock. I, I did a college radio show for a long time, but Fantasy was my place. Peabody's Down Under was my place. Dancing was nine of clubs. No bands there, but that was, you could, you know, you could really go to any of these places on certain nights alone because you would know your friends there, and it was, you know, it was the hangout. Sometimes Peabody's Cafe, depending on who, you know, your friends wanted to see, you know, you could go to the Sahara. I said, we used to, I was telling Dee, we used to go see a band, a cover band, but they played like alternative rock. I was going to John Carroll at the time, so I'd pick girls up at John Carroll, would drive to, what was it? Was it Willoughby? Banky's? No, oh, we'd go to North Ridgeville. Drive out there on a Wednesday night, and I did my college radio show on Thursday mornings, but I had to come, would stay till like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I would drop them off and then come home. And then, and my mother's thing was always like, look, you can go out, but you, I don't want to hear you complaining the next day. So I would have to, you know, turn around, get ready, and be at my show or class, depending on what was what. And so that's what I, I no, I didn't do a lot of the old agora. I don't, I don't think I was probably old enough at the time. You know, if I could bring up a point about the old agora, and I was just on, in touch uh, just today with Buddy Maver. I don't know if anybody remembers the name Buddy Maver. Buddy was uh, actually the drummer in uh, Rainbow Canyon and uh, Shred. So, you know, like, Buddy's a great guy. And let me just preface this by what goes into this story is I was talking to Jane Scott one day. Now, Jane always had a smile on her face. And I said, Jane, is there anybody that you really disliked? And all of a sudden, she just lost a smile, and she said, yeah. Jake Rivera. I said, Jake Rivera is traveling with Elvis Costello. 
And apparently, this and Buddy backed this up, Elvis was playing at the Old Agora, and uh, Jake Rivera was, I think, the head of Stiff Records at that time. At any rate, what happened is they have the press back there to meet Elvis Costello, and Jake Rivera says, nobody speaks to Elvis until he speaks to you. So Elvis walks in, and Jane says, hi, Elvis. I'm not going to dignify the comment by repeating it, but he said something about Jane Scott. Buddy Maver, is, you don't mess with Buddy Maver. He's a drummer. You ever see his arms? You wouldn't mess with Buddy Maver. Uh, he let Elvis know in no uncertain terms, you don't speak to Miss Scott that way. Now, he wanted to take it outside. What are you, nuts? He'd, he'd take you apart. Buddy Maver's a big guy. But at any rate, the old Agora was, once again, it was very innocent in that a lot of these acts, when they came in, as we all know, were just, you know, just trying to break out, and they were just on, literally on the verge of doing something. But they were also very approachable in many ways, not only by the press, but even by the fans. And Dana, talk a bit about, because you mentioned like specific things in your book that, you know, everyone talks about the big shows at the Agora, but they seem like the Agora opens in 66, and then what was the special sauce there? Because you talk about it being a place where boomers could congregate. What was, it, what was special about the Agora that made it, you know, the historical place we look at now? There was always, you know, live music, you know, and then... Um, it, you know, there was a lot of other places, too. There was Mad Hatter. There was a lot of places in you'd go downtown, you know, uh, like the song. Huh? Um, and it was just everybody was there for the music, and, and we were all the same age, and, you know, it's kind of hard to describe. It was just a place that you went to, and, um, you know... Uh, just seeing, you know, Michael Stanley, I, I remember seeing, you know, he, he played there a lot, but a lot of the, the local bands as well as the national bands were there, you know. Do you have a favorite, Agora, and we'll go down the line, but do you have a favorite show that you saw at the Agora? You know, I don't. Um, I was, I remember seeing Steppenwolf, and I, I really like that one. Um, but, you know, it, it was always so crowded. You know, so it was like you, you went, you were like sardines half the time. You know, there was a lot of, lot of people there. So, Mike, do you have a favorite show or memory? Uh, I saw several shows there. and uh, But let me just bring up a show that I saw outside the Agora. And if you remember, anybody that showed up at the Agora, it was a lot of the same people every week, you know. And you had, it was, you were part of the scene, as they said it. You know, it was like you saw the same people all the time, you know. And I wish Daffy Dan was here because he remembered the name of this one guy. But I remember there was this one guy, I think he went to Cleveland State, and he used to just walk around, and like he was always by himself. And, you know, you had the guys from Collinwood. They didn't like the guys from Mayfield. But you were on neutral ground there, you know. And there was, like, the same groups all the time. So I remember... This guy would just go around to people and say, yeah, yeah it's going to be a good show tonight. Yeah, Argentina, they're going to play. I'm going to cut you know, and like that. You know, I think he went to Cleveland State. I think I saw him. And everybody go, yeah, it's going to be a good show. That's fine. But, that, yeah, but, you know, he was part of the scene. So, and you had the jocks there and stuff like that, you know, and their hair wasn't really long. And if they weren't there at the Agora, they were at the gym, you know. But at any rate, a couple of kids show up. I don't know if it was outside the T-Rex show or, you know, and they're making fun of this guy. And these big guys walk over. And they go to this guy that was, you know, the, the little squirrely guy. He says, how you doing, buddy? Good to see you again. Good show last week. Yeah, it was a good show last week. It was a play. Yeah, right. yeah, wanted to say hello. We'll look for you inside. And these other two guys are, like, shaking in their boots. They took off. Meanwhile, the other guy's going around, hey, there's going to be a good show tonight. You know, like that. <laughs> but that was, the, they were part of the scene. You were part of the community. But certainly T-Rex, Argent, all those, you know, the, they were all just great shows. Sue, go ahead. I mean, you worked there. I was so. going to say, well, again, <laughs> The, the new old Agora. Right. Um, but I, I, I will say that, and Henry Sr. Um, 
was around even though George was running the place. And I think, and I, I, I believe I've read it in stories, especially after he passed, about how well he would treat the bands that were there. And it was about the, you know, who his, his mother making the food and stuff like that. And that kind of continued um, when George was running it. Next door to the Agora is that apartment building, the Esmond. It's tucked away. You don't see it really unless you're looking for it on, on Euclid Avenue. And Debbie Dresser was the catering manager. The hospital, you know, there wasn't a name for it. But now she would be the F&B lady. Um, and her friend Cher, God rest Cher soul, she, um, they would cook. You know, he had a little cafe there, but a lot of times they would be cooking at their apartment. And, you know, you send over the rider, and this is what we're looking for. And a lot of places you play, it's, you know, here's some pizzas or takeout or whatever. Debbie poured her heart and her soul into cooking and, and making sure they got what they needed. And they continued to build that rapport that Henry had. Um, a lot of times after the show, she would always be like, oh, yeah, come over to the apartment. And you would go to the apartment, and thank God there's not a lot of apartments in that building. And a lot of people that live there, I think Glenn the bartender lived there, Johan lived there, Debbie lived there, a couple other people that worked weird hours because after the show, the show would continue in the hallway, in the apartment, and just showing them a good time, you know, and hanging out and having some fun. And um, I was just talking to Barry Gable about this the other day with, you know, Belkin Productions and Live Nation. A lot of people don't do this anymore. The Belkins do. They're very good at it, trying to make your... And if you talk to people who tour, they'll tell you they love the, the they, they love playing, that's not the hard work. It's the trudging from city to city that's a bit of a pain in the ass. And to be treated well and to go above and beyond. And um, Stacy Harper, who is, um, you know, the production queen of Cleveland for decades now, she's always, you know, hey, you know, and if you ever worked a show with her, it's like, what am I doing? You know, uh, you're going out here to get what and why. And it's just something special to make the band feel, you know, oh, they like ice cream or Amy Grant likes potato chips. So I went on a potato chip run on Sunday because I wanted to make sure she had, you know, something, uh, something a little bit nicer that we, you know, in again, not there anymore. But that was one of the things with the Agora too. It was always going the above and beyond. So the bands felt really good about it. The laundry. I always was impressed that they always made sure that the, the guys that were coming in from out of town they would help well, and again, them. especially Debbie would, because she was like, oh, I just live, you know, so, and she'd walk out the back door and go in the back, but it was, you'll, I don't think, well, I would like to think some club somewhere is like that, um, but I those know, were good times. I know we're, <clears throat> fast forward, excuse me, into the 90s when you worked there, but what was the craziest show that you worked at the Agora that you could talk about? <laughs> Well, and yeah, I'm in the box office, I'm up front, so I don't know what's going on. But my, I will, I'll start with a happy. My favorite show of all time at the Agora was Lenny Kravitz's first time in Cleveland. Total cross-section of everybody in Cleveland. Old, young, black, white, hippie, rocker, gay, straight, families, because we were all ages. That was a great vibe that night. Um, we had a couple of riots there. Um, it started off with one, it was a rental, and the fire department was there, and they're like, if people don't move upstairs to the balcony, you're done. So we had to lock the doors, and 
police shut down Euclid Avenue from 40th to 55th because there were so many people trying to get in. So that was interesting. Then we had um, an, a, a night where um, it was a rap act. They'll rename, remain nameless. I don't know what set everybody off, but there was just a, and if you remember the Agora at Euclid, and it's different now if you go there, you used to come down the steps, go through that little foyer, and you could either turn right to go to Euclid or left to go to Prospect. And I'm sitting in the box office, and all of a sudden, just like a herd of people go running past. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And somebody picked up a stanchion and bashed it against my box office door, which such a force, it flew open. And I'm sitting there with, we didn't have, this is pre-Ticketmaster, or maybe we just got Ticketmaster, but we didn't take credit cards, so it was all cash. And it was all walk-up. So I was probably sitting there with like $30,000, and I didn't have time to like put it in a drawer because it was all, I think it was like 40 bucks to come in or 30. So I'm just there. They bash the door, and it hits with such force against the wall. We had a little metal sandwich sign that we used to put on the street. And the door closed, and the sandwich sign fell, and it lodged against my little ledge. And I was like, oh, my God. Collected the money, went in the center room. What's going on? That we don't know, this, that, and the other. So we have another one um, where literally the rapper was like, kill so-and-so. And, st and it was like, again, massive exodus. The cops had left. It was a bad night where I bought our production guy, Larry Dolan's mom's couch for like 30 bucks. And I just put it in the office. Cause, and it was gr like, like 10 feet long or 12. It was a great couch. <laughs> it was bloody at the end of the night because they picked up the security guys and literally threw them through the front door. So, it, it again, not a great night. So those were some pretty rough evenings we had. I was going to talk about the Springsteen show, but this is... Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> is anybody here, did anybody here go to the Springsteen 78 show? A few. Back here. One of my biggest regrets. It's, you know, what's crazy is I, we did a podcast on that show, and somebody said it best. You'd find 20,000 people who said they went to the Springsteen 78 show. Well, you know what? He played uh, more than once there at the Agora that year because when Southside Johnny came in, uh, you know, Southside was here two nights, the same two nights that Bruce is at the Richfield Coliseum. So the first night, Southside walks on stage at the Richfield Coliseum. What's going to happen at the Agora the next night? Where's kept secret? So what happened was Bruce comes out, and they were actually filming Southside for the uh, Channel 8 show, the Live from the Agora. So they're watching this, and Buddy Maver's watching. He says, this is going to be a great show. They filmed the thing. It was a great show. The next day, John Landau call, calls up, and he says, yeah, I heard about the show. It's really supposed to be terrific. By the way, you can't use that video. Uh, and he said, what do you mean we can't use the video? He says, well, Bruce hasn't done a video yet, and you know we don't want it to be a, like a jam session type thing. There were a lot of stories why that wasn't shown. First of all, if you ever see this, and if you go to YouTube, you see the you know Springsteen. He's really thin. Now, there was one story that he just looked too skinny because the next time he came through Cleveland, it looked like he was at Vic Tanny. <laughs> you know, really. And then there was another one that said, no, we got to separate, you know, South Side from, from Springsteen, all that sort of thing. Uh, I tend to agree with this. Probably he hadn't done a video yet. Let's put, put out a solo one first. I wanna, we only have so much time, so I want to, we could stay, we could do a whole thing on the Agora. But so to go into the 70s, Deanne, I want to ask you because it's obviously in your book, like everything. 
Um, World Series of Rock, it, correct me if I'm wrong, in Ridgefield Coliseum opens the same year, 74, that 74, right. World Series of Rock begins. W take me to that era. How, like, what was it like? Because now you're into the big concert era. Right, Arena Rock and, <laughs> oh, um, well, the World Series of Rock was, you know, I can't believe that there were that, it was like Woodstock every Saturday, and they had six, seven groups all day long into the night, People were camping out, uh, and at first it was a lot just Cleveland, uh, maybe some PA people, but it was really pretty local until word got around, and then people were coming from Michigan all over the place, and it got bigger and bigger. And, of course, I was at the Stones one. Uh, go figure. Uh, <laughs> 82,000 people, and, and, and that was one of the records. But that many people rocking all day long. Yeah, they had, uh, you know, some people got, you know, sick and, you know, but there was not any problems until towards the end, right. you know, because, but it, worked, it had a great run. And the Belkins, the, the Belkins have really transformed the venue because the Beatles played, you know, the stadium and the sound was horrible. It was not at all a rock oh, venue. Oh, and you at the Beatles one? No, no I was not. Young. But you know what? Quite honestly, I didn't I mean, even look at true. you like you were at the Beatles thing. No, but, but I mean, it, it really, that, that was it, it exactly. I mean, they didn't have a very good uh, PA system. And uh, if you look at the Ron Howard uh, film, uh, you know, about the, the Beatles on tour, you saw just how primitive it really was. I mean, and that's one of the reasons the Beatles finally said, we're not doing this anymore. Nobody can hear us. Let's talk Ridgefield Coliseum. Um, you know, it struck me, you know, in retrospect, you see all these historic shows from Prince, Springsteen, you know, you name them, they were there. But there's this photo in your in your book, Mike, where it really is the prairie. Like, there's, I think, animals grazing oh, yeah, with sure. it. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, what was this? When this came about, when they decided to put this there, what was the reaction? Like, where? Where, where is this going? Well, there was, initially, it was kind of negative because they, they thought that it was like a palace of greed, you know. But initially, they said, look, we'll get people from Cleveland and from Akron. But they were actually trying trying to put up another 20,000-seat arena that same year in downtown Cleveland on the side of the arena. Uh, it really didn't matter. I mean, it's the, the only thing was was that parking was like Blossom. You know, they just couldn't get around it. But, uh, I mean, people still showed up for the shows. That was it. Sue, did you make the trek? I mean, I'm assuming you made the trek out to Ridgefield at least a few times. When I was doing research on this, the two things I got a lot were obviously about the shows and then seemed like, damn, if there wasn't a dozen snowstorms there. <laughs> My first show working there was Janet Jackson in, I don't know, early, maybe 91? I don't know. But that was going to be my first, like, arena show to work in production. And I drive all the way out there in my stomach. I'm like, what do I do? I don't know. What am I supposed to do? Who am I working with? I don't know. You know. And I get out there, and it was a snowy kind of crappy day. Not horrendous. But again, I was driving like super early in the morning and I get there and they're like, yeah, the show's canceled. Janet, Janet, they're not making it in. So I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I was very happy that I couldn't. Um, my nights, I, you know, I, I never had any issues driving with crappy weather, thank God. Um, I slept out there for tickets. And in my list of good places to sleep out for tickets was the Coliseum because they had, I think, a, um, they had security for us. And they had portalettes, so it was very lovely. <laughs> Mike, do you have any memories of going out to the Coliseum? I mean, I've interviewed people who went to the Kiss, you know, snowstorm show. Plenty of them, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I remember uh, that the Who decided that they were going to, on one of their farewell tours, that it was their first farewell tour, and their last two shows were going to be in Cleveland. And tickets, you get, this, was, this was amazing. This is the marketing geniuses of WMMS, because they said, wait a minute, 
we're going to actually get our call letters on the on the on each ticket. Now I think it cost them like a buck for each ticket or something that we paid for. But at the same time, there was only one place to get the tickets. So luckily, I was working on another radio station. We were still able to get tickets. But I remember two nights in a row, and even you know Jan was saying, "You're going to go to see the Who two nights in a row." Is that right? Is that really? Yeah, they're the Who. It's the last time they're going to be together. <laughs> For the next two years, and then two years after that, and then two years. But at any rate, yeah, Richfield Coliseum. Schottenstein Center, by the way. Uh, it, it, it was a long ride out there, you know. And then coming back, you know, the, the lines and all that. And it's funny, as you go back past there now, it's just a, a field again. So. Well, Blossom, too, was, was so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, but we, we were, this was back in the but van. Wasn't the parking lot fun, though, after a show and before the I show? I was going to say, my husband had a van, and then we all have a van. And, the, and we would just get back, and we would just crash in the van, and then the security guy would knock on our door and go, okay, and we'd get home the same amount of time that it took if we left right after the concert. Oh. Deanna, do you have a, a memory? Uh, can't say the Stones. I don't. Did the Stones play Richfield? This is my favorite memories. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go ahead. Do you have a memory from Richfield? It could be the Stones. You um, know, as a favorite show. Yeah, they just were so consistent. And one thing about them, because I, I did see Billy Joel one time. Uh, he always, you know, in his younger days, concerts were great. The last one. He was doing all his slow songs first and then built up to it, and that doesn't work. And what I love about the Stones is that they come out of the gate like a horse and just right there, they're, they got you there because you're already hyped up. So I could never understand why you want to start a concert, you know, like mellower and build it up. No, everyone's excited. They want it, to, you know. You're getting like Bruce Springsteen three and a half hours later. I would even get tired. It's like, come on, you know. <laughs> I love you, but, oh, you know, but. Yeah, so that's what the best concerts is when they really, you know, come out screaming. Does it count that I fell asleep at ACDC? <laughs> no. What I do you want? <laughs> well, I, t I think I went to see um, who opened for them. Maybe L.A. Guns yeah. or The Cult. I, can't, I think it was L.A. Guns. But I was working it, again, I was doing overnights, or, or I can't remember what year it was, but it was very loud, and it was warm, and it was late, and I was tired, <laughs> so I might have dozed. I'm sorry. Uh, I want to ask uh, Mike, <laughs> when you, it's kind of interesting because when you dig into Cleveland music history, you get these stories in, in Richfield specifically, right? You have the Zeppelin shows where, um, you know, Destroyer came out of one of those shows, they're, you know, the most popular bootleg, and then uh, Springsteen taking a, a firecracker in the face. When you start researching this stuff, did anything shock you, even the story that you heard? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. I think that the thing that really kind of surprised me, though, is that how much, even though there's some of these things that did happen, you know, at some of these events, how they really held Cleveland in such high regard. I mean, it, well, an example, uh, Led Zeppelin. I mean, they loved Cleveland because they would satellite out of Cleveland from Swingos to go to other cities. And uh, I, I remember at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it was when uh, they were doing the Unleaded tour with Page and Plant, and they were at the Waldorf Astoria. They did not ask John Paul Jones, Jones to join the tour. So there was a lot of tension. They brought him out on stage, and they said, all right, look, uh, no questions here. You know, the, we don't want any questions for Led Zeppelin. Like, that's going to stop the press. So everybody's yelling, what about John Paul Jones? Why didn't you ask him? And, you know, they're just kind of ignoring him. And I said, when are you coming back to finish the demolition work on Swingos? They all looked, and Jimmy Page said, Cleveland, just like that. <laughs> But, I mean, they all held Cleveland in such high regard. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, a couple days after the, the tragedy in Cincinnati at the Who concert, they were here in Richfield, and they were going to call off the tour. And the word was that they, they kind of got an idea from the, the response that they got in Richfield, let's continue this, that we can keep going. Of course, this was a big Who town, too.
Obviously, those are the big shows, but it seemed like, you know, and you guys lived it, Cleveland just became this hotbed where you had, you know, so many venues. Like, I was reading in your book about Euclid Tavern, the Uke, is that what they called it? The yes, Uke? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that seemed like it got engulfed, because that venue had been open, was 1909, and then in the 70s and 80s, it becomes this big thing for college. Kids Green Day played there for like 100 bucks they got yeah. paid. I mean, is that what it was like, sort of, you could go anywhere in town and... Because it covered all the genres. The, you know, uh, and, and the, in the same club, it would be different genres. It wouldn't be just, okay, this is the, you know, the uh, whatever. Um, but I, that's what was so great about Cleveland, that there was so many different venues. There was no real competition. It was just like there was something going on all the time. Different, But the different genres w was, was so great, especially with the uke, you know. Uh, this blue stress, you know, Mr. Stress Blues Band, uh, to name one, every Saturday night for many, many years, you know, and they just kept coming to see him. Uh, um, yeah, it's, that was so fun to write about because there was, it, I didn't experience everything. I wasn't everywhere. I, I wanted to be everywhere. I wanted to clone myself as I, I still do because there's still so many clubs and so much live music still happening. But it was really good to talk to the people that, you know, I'm sure, you know, like you, what you're doing now yeah, is great. It's amazing. It's funny because, Sue, you mentioned, I didn't know if we would even bring this up, but uh, the fantasy uh, that you went to, because, you know, when I moved here, um, I was living in Lakewood. You make that drive to, you know, Gordon's, you know, Arts District, and you drive by, and, and it's so unassuming, but there's history there. I'm curious, you know, your first person account, what was it like to be a concert goer there? Because I know there's history some Nine Inch Nails stuff. What was it like for you to go there? Again, it was a, it was a place, I don't want to call it a scene, but I guess it kind of was, you know? If you were into that alternative rock scene, that's where you went to see the shows. And you could go alone because you saw your friends, and, you know, the same people would show up at the same sort of, you know, the genre of shows. And again, an, a, another great family who went above and beyond to make their rock and roll guests feel, or whatever you want to call it, you know, like like they're they're at home. But um, you could go alone because you it was friends. That's what it was all about. It was like you know, and where I would also see a lot of people is waiting in line at um, the music hall to buy tickets for Echo and the Bunnymen in 1980 whatever. And we'll see at the show. And then you would see them down the row from you. And then you'd see them at the next sleep out. And you'd see them at the next concert. And, oh, my God, I know you from wherever. You'd see them at Peabody. So it was, um, it was a fun little family. And I remember a friend from college, she's like, I want to go with you to a show there. I hear you talking about it all the time. She wasn't into the scene. And I said, all right. She goes, what's the next show you're going to? I said, the Jesus and Mary chain. And I think it was their first show in Cleveland. And, you know, like with any different kind of thing that you see, the bark is worse than the bite. You know, it's like, oh, they look kind of... And she was like, I'm going to hold the back of your shirt and don't let me get lost. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I said, nothing's going to happen, but okay. But, you know, it kind of, ooh, it looks scary. But again, instead of listening to, like, somebody say, you don't know what goes on down there, come and check it out. Nothing goes on down there. A lot of fun. Mike, how long were you, what was your, uh, when did you start at WMMS and when did you finish there? Well, in 1971, I was talking to the jocks at MMS. I said, how do I get into radio? I said, come down here and be an intern. I went down there. I got off the bus on Public Square, walked to 55th. What a walk. <laughs> and I'm knocking on the door. Nobody's coming to the door. I, I, I storm home and I call up and Ginger Sutton, if you remember Ginger, he says, 
you idiot, we don't have anybody at the door on Saturdays. So I waited uh, a few years. I got on the radio in 77 and uh, went, uh, I was there in 1988, so I was there about 10 years. But it was kind of interesting because by that time, MMS was a monster. Right. And, uh, and it, here's an indication. In, I think it was Pam Barker is here from MMS. She would remember the story. Bon Jovi was going to do a show, I think it was for the All Nations Festival, a free concert. Now, mind you, they are an arena rock act by this time. They've got like four semis full of equipment coming in, but it's going to rain that day. So they said, well, we got to call it off. Somebody comes up with the idea, no, we'll have it at Peabody's. Uh, okay, what, Peabody's? It's the size of this room. So, you know, so I, I think it was Tico Torre says, they, they commend their life. They don't even know if they can get the equipment in through the door at Peabody's. And he says, we're not playing in this place. And Dewey Forrest says, well, I guess I'll go tell MMS. Comes back and says, Kid Leo wants to talk to you. Well, Kid Leo's a greaser. You know, you don't mess with this guy. And Tico comes back after five minutes. He says, I guess we're playing the club. Oh. <laughs> and he says, well, you're going to fit 250 people in there. So it was up to Dewey to go out with the line that's going out the door saying, okay, one, two, three, four. We're going to end it right here. And all you're hearing is, oh, shit. <laughs> and it's like, you know, all of a sudden this thunder. The, the concert came off without a hitch. But still, it's just that we were so fervent about anything to do with rock and roll with any venue that, you know, you just wanted to be a part of it. And he even had, I think it was uh, 91, 92, the Pro Jam show at oh, Peabody's sure. where they played that basketball game with against the guys from WMMS. Oh, There's yeah, video. There's a crazy sure. video of this on YouTube still if you, if you search it. Um, but Pearl Jam it was big at this time. You yeah, know, sure. it was 10 had taken off and they held true to their word of playing this concert. Uh, even though they could have bailed and played a bigger venue. Well, you had a lot of strong radio, and it wasn't just MMS. It was a lot of you had a lot. College radio was like huge. I mean, it, it was a groundbreaker there. So you had great radio behind it too. All right, we're gonna open up uh, for questions um, from you guys. So if you have a question, I think we'll have Mike Wranglers. Mike Miller's gonna be one of them. He's out here. He's ready to go. Um, so if you have a question, just raise your hand, and, and Mike Miller will get to you. Um, anybody? Oh, do we have somebody? Way over here. All right. question Not just the owner. It's the Mike Wrangler. <laughs> um, I went to a lot of concerts uh, at the old Richfield Coliseum, and the the thing I the one thing I despised about it uh, in the 1970s was that people would blow off uh, M80 firecrackers. And it would scare the daylights out of me. And I remember there was a DJ from uh, WMMS, I think her name was, I think, Stelly Sty Shelly Shelly Styles, Styles yeah. who just, uh, just, just really let people have it the following morning after a concert the night before at the Coliseum where people were blowing off that midis. I mean, it was uh, really very, very uh, dangerous. I mean, somebody could lose their eyesight over that. And I was wondering like, if you could comment on why did that happen? during that era, and it just went on and on. It just wasn't that era. First of all, as Troy pointed out, Jan and I, when we were doing research for Smoky Sweaty, Bruce Springsteen almost you know, got hit in the head with an M80, you know? But this goes way back, because in 1971, I went to Bedford High School, and our principal was Woodrow Shipley. His son was a Shipley, a brewer in Shipley. They were number two on a bill. The opening act was Sweat Hog. They were number two, and then it was Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. So thank you. you're doing one toke over the line before Iron Man, you know. <laughs> and it was the 4th of July. And there's fireworks everywhere. Everywhere. There was no reason for it. 
There was no reason. It was stupid. And thank goodness that it, it ended. You know, really, that's all I can and they say. Would send, they, had fireworks, they were setting off some fireworks at some of the World Series of Rock shows as well. Yeah. Oh, we have another question back here. Right. So I'm not from Cleveland, but when I moved here in the late 70s, a friend of mine said, you've got to go to the Brick Cottage on Euclid Avenue at Case Western Reserve for a band which you mentioned called Mr. Stress. Can you address that? Because I've never heard anything like that in my life. Yeah, they're in your book. You mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, Bill Miller. Uh, and he started in the 60s forming the blues band, uh, you know, when there was no blues band. Well, that's another thing with Cleveland. Uh, reggae, you know, was not even really on the radar in the country, maybe in Florida and all that, but our first, uh, first reggae band in the country was in Cleveland. You know, it's interesting to bring up about different genres of music and how they took off in Cleveland. Uh, years ago, I was talking to uh, Jimmy Zero from the Dead Boys, and I said, why is it that Cleveland was such a hotbed? And he said, Goulardi. <laughs> he said, he showed us that anarchy could be entertainment. He, he worked at a radio station. He kept getting fired. Exactly. <laughs> and that's how Mad Daddy, got to look up Mad Daddy. What, uh, what a character. I wish I would have known him. But uh, that's how Gallardi got started. Sure. With we have another question? I have two quick comments, if I may. Before I talk sure. about Elvis at my high school, I want to tell you all that Sue has amazing customer service skills. Oh. She has helped me at MGM a few different times. Thank you. Thank you for the vet ticks. And I think I know the young man that you're talking about. Jordan? Right, right, right. Yeah. But as far as D talking about Elvis, I wasn't old enough. Uh, I wasn't alive when he <laughs> played there. But throughout my military career and traveling around different places, I've often bragged to people about the fact that I was in the band and in the choir and then multiple plays on the same stage where Elvis performed. Yay. 9200 Bidolph Avenue is the high school. And there's a plaque there. So if anyone wants to go, just stop by the high school. There's a plaque. Right there, uh, by the state, you know, by the auditorium. Do you have a question? Negative. No. Thank you. Thank you for your service. No. Yes. <laughs> we have another one. I've heard all these folks uh, talk about all the concerts and stuff, and I was just about every venue you guys talked about. The question I have, if anyone has the answer, is what has happened to Cleveland? We didn't have to drive to Columbus to see the Stones, which we've done twice. They came to Cleveland. What has happened? It's like the major acts avoid Cleveland. I'm just wondering if anyone has any background. I want to say before the Stones thing, I was just talking to Mike Miller about this. The Stones were scheduled to play the stadium here. The Haslam's did not want them to play during, they don't like concerts during football season. So the Stones did intend to honor that day when they came back There's around. There's a lot of things <laughs> that go into it. A lot. And I don't think it's anybody avoids us because most people make a lot of decent money when they come here. Um, it, it does have a lot to do with the fact that, yeah, we've got a basketball team, we've got a hockey team, we've got, so, and it's very difficult to you know, maybe you have a, that's who you talk to, the people that run those venues where it's it's sometimes difficult. And especially during COVID, and I think COVID kind of brought it out where it's like, not only do you have a, a mass exodus of every calendar, then everybody starts to come back, plus everybody's got to get out there, but I've got a Browns game that day. And the thing too, sometimes you don't realize is 
to do a show at the stadium, you're talking probably 10 to 14 day build to get it ready. You know, everything from the steel, they're building that from scratch. So it's not just a come in the morning of like in an arena, at least where you've got a kind of permanent building and structure. It's a, different, it's a different production when you're going inside versus outside. So I don't think it's a, a lot of, ugh, we, we just don't like Cleveland. I think it's, we can't, we can't fit you anywhere. And like, we didn't get a 360 tour for you too because we, j we couldn't fit that production. It's yeah. just, you know, sometimes it's just too big or I can't hang certain things and the weight. Some places just aren't built for it. But you know, in the 90s, Michael's, uh, I almost said Michael Stanley, Michael Jackson's, uh, there was a lot of concerts, uh, CSNY, you know, uh, at, in the state, in the, but it was always But I think you summer. also had different owners back then too and if, you yeah. had a different sort of. Yeah. If you talk to, you know, in, in interviewing, uh, you know, um, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, they like to put out that, you know, ranking that Polestar does, how high they are. I asked them this question a few years ago, and they talked about how the markets had changed, where there are acts who think, you know, they can go as far as Buffalo and draw from Cleveland and vice versa. So that is broadened as well, where it's not just Columbus versus Cleveland. It's Columbus, Cleveland versus Detroit, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, you know, all these And areas. let me tell you, that it's not fun when you put a show on sale after a show, the same show that goes on sale, like somewhere close, and you're like, oh, my God, what are we doing? <laughs> but because it's a tight sometimes, and you don't want to have a show where it's like, ah, crap, why is everybody else selling? But Cleveland isn't. And it's a genre thing, too. I mean, you know, sometimes I remember we were asked to do a few shows, and Michael was like, I don't think this is going to play in Cleveland. And no, it's going to be great. And it wasn't. But because um, nobody knows your city like your local booker, but you know why listen to that guy? Um, California knows more. Um, but so I don't think I really don't think it's it, it, it's a lot to do with um, we don't like Cleveland. There's a lot of puzzle pieces to put that together, unfortunately. Now I I'll jump in on this. A you little tried bit. to get the Being Stones to come here, didn't you, Mike Miller? <laughs> Yesterday, but. Uh, <laughs> Guys, uh, when we first opened this club, uh, it was a little tough uh, to get people through Cleveland. Uh, I have to tell you, it has changed in the last five years. Uh, Cleveland definitely is back on the map, and we, we get now a lot of, of calls uh, that just weren't happening in the first several years that we owned this place, but uh, you're exactly right. Yeah, sometimes you just can't fit them. Believe it or not, Cleveland's pretty damn busy these days. I mean, uh, and so uh, fitting them in and uh, from these larger acts do need don't need the venue for just one night. They need the venue for five nights, and we're booked. <laughs> so it, it's good news, bad news, guys. Uh, but there's no question in my mind, Cleveland is back. And, and largely because of you and you and your wife, I, I'm here all the time, as you know. Here and upstairs, there's always something at the music box, and what a beautiful concert hall that is. Uh, so it, it's, it's wonderful, and you need applause because what you guys do is amazing. You know? uh, and we, we needed that. We needed you. Do we have a question? What do we miss? I know you're limited for questions, so this is about a dream, and I wish I could ask everybody in this room, what is your dream of rock and roll for Cleveland 
in the future, if you could design a venue, if you could take your experience, I wanna hear from the panelists, but if you could design what your experience was and what you wanna experience again, whether it's um, acoustics, location in Cleveland, who you, you know, for Cleveland to be rock and roll, what is your dream? I think we're living the dream right now with all these venues and all the live, all the, the, the venues, like I said, right here, where you can see so many people and go, and uh, there's so many choices, east, west, south. Uh, I think it's doing great. The flats are doing great again. I think it's too, like, it's a time, and you could, you know, Mike, you might elaborate on this, but. You know, somebody's younger. It's a time gone by too. You can't recapture. I have a friend who's a big Metallica fan, and you know, Metallica played Rock and Mortgage a couple years ago, and he's like, "Eh," you know. And I said, "Oh, I can't get you coming." He goes, "Well, if you can take me back to Metallica at the Agora, I would do that." Well, you know, that type of thing. Well, you know, I like the 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 events. I I saw Graham Nash here, and it was an incredible show. I don't know if anybody else saw it, but this was the place to see Graham Nash. But I like the small hall shows. I like them at affordable prices. Uh, I don't think that um, a lot of that comes down to the club owners. It comes down to the people who are booking the acts, you know, or the people who are, who are offering the acts. This is what we'll play for if you want us there. Uh, I'd like to see low-price shows again. I think those days are gone. I mean, high production costs, things like that. But I think that if I were to look for an ideal place, it would be a small hall show like this with somebody that I've grown up with that I've always enjoyed. That's what I was thinking. A friend and I went to see um, one of our favorite bands, Gene Loves Jezebel, who I understand is coming back to the House of Blues on June 1st. Um, we w God knows where we went to this place. I couldn't get there again in Pittsburgh, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a concert hall, bowling alley, um, cigar bar, escape room, restaurant combo. Jurgles. No, I can't think, it, but I can't remember but I love going to shows like that because I'm like, damn it, anyhow. I wish, and I'm not, good, I'm, not, I'm not adventurous with my money, but I said I would love to buy maybe a room like this size. And not, I, not, I'm not going to be open every night of the week because I'm tired, but I just want to book... <laughs> I just want to book bands that I love. Like one night we have Gila's Jezebel. I got a little L.A. Guns action. Echo and the Bunnymen's coming to town. Where it, it's, like you said, inexpensive, clean ladies' restrooms and more ladies' restrooms. Um, and just, keep, you know, to do so. And, but then, you know what I start thinking about? The insurance, if somebody sues me, if somebody falls down, I'm like, I'm not, I can't, it's, it's, it's a lot, but. Nobody talks about the Agora restrooms, I'm telling you. There's <laughs> Michael Vulcan always, he's like, yeah, yeah, I know you love the Agora. I still do. I, 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 I don't love what they did when they ripped out all the chairs and stuff like that, but that was my favorite. And you know, Tower what, City Amphitheater was a lot of fun, too. Peabody's, the floor was always wet. Why? Oh, we don't want to know. All right. We don't want to know. I think we had some questions. Okay, I want to squeeze. I want to squeeze in some more questions over here. Somebody so might know why the floor was wet. I could venture to a guess, but so at college venues, um, I saw James Taylor in the Fieldhouse at Case Western Reserve University. He had just put out his first Warner Brothers album. He was barely known. It was him with an acoustic guitar for a couple of hours. Um, I think I saw Jethro Tull at Baldwin Wallace. Could you talk a little bit about those venues? Um, there's a lot of great stuff going on at colleges all around Northeast Ohio. Two come to mind right away. 
the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page at Baldwin Wallace just a few months before he went into the studio with Led Zeppelin. And uh, the, the choir was the opening act. And the other one was Pink Floyd at Case Western Reserve University. And uh, I uh, saw a Sly in the Family. Oh, Bruce, of course, Bruce Springsteen and John Carroll. And Tim Russert was the guy that booked it. I saw uh, uh, Sly in the Family Stone at uh, John Carroll. John Carroll. I saw Sly in the Family Stone. This uh, gentleman here, you've had your hand up for a while. Well, I just, you folks have talked a lot about a lot of the big name bands and a lot of the big venues. Um, from being an East Sider, uh, things like the Chesterlin Hollabaloo, we used to come down to Fat Glens. Bands like the Raspberries, the Choir, Cyrus Erie. Any, any comments on those types of folks? That's a man after my own heart right there. <laughs> this is, and that's the beauty of your book, is you go, you, you try to cover every venue that's ever existed, and they're all listed. I gave it a sh good shot. <laughs> when you talk about these, these shows, yeah. and there was a play, um, remind me, uh, at the basement of the Agora, right? They, they, they had it was a mistake. Yeah, and, and they and had more of the local But it was a mistake well, first. And, yeah, and a lot of the bands like that better because, sure. you know, the grittier, the some of the clubs that were just, you know, uh, not so fancy, you know, there's, that had its own allure, you know, kind of a, a feel, vibe, you know, and the, and the um, you know, the hollow blues, such, gr you know, great memories of that, seeing the bands change, you know, the mods turned into choirs, and then they had two, you know, they were t uh, changing members, but now it's been uh, the fifth, it's, this year is the 50th anniversary of the Raspberries, which came out of not just the mood, uh, the mods and the choir, but, um, oh my God, uh, I, uh, that was my favorite, but um, now I can't think of it. Uh, we're, oh shoot, and it was one of my favorite bands when I was 15, but it's same kind of members. Uh, Cyrus Erie, <laughs> thank you. See, I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah, but. You know, just to see them live, and I remember seeing Eric Carmen. He was 17 years old, and you just knew he was going to be something because whether it was playing the Who, he was, you know, he became the person of the band that he was playing, and he was so talented. He would go from the keyboards to the guitar to the, you know, yeah, real talent. It, it seemed like every place like that, you know, it didn't matter how big it was, had bands. And I remember the Viking Saloon, if you remember the Viking Saloon or Viking Cleveland State. And uh, which was a weird place. But the funny thing was, they had a band called Frankenstein. And I thought, what's this band? This, this, this has noised me. They became the Dead Boys. So on, on they went to bigger and better things. But I mean, you know, you saw so many of these like root type acts that were just starting out. And you were, you know, young. Really they were young. Very young. Well, the James Gang started out at a place called the Dove Lounge. Well, I was looking through my calendar, not to interrupt, um, at the Agora, and even at the, at the Odeon, I could not believe the amount of local bands we played in the big room that would sell 2,000 tickets. And I think radio has changed, the scene has changed a little bit, but it was, I'm like, that was very cool, you know? I mean, I don't know if a local band would do that these days, but I don't know. They play YouTube, I think. <laughs> Um, I mean, we're going to wrap it up. I, I really appreciate, again, all of you guys coming out. This will uh, be, it's being recorded as part of the CLE Rocks podcast, and it'll go live on cleveland.com tomorrow morning, probably around 10, um, and I'll get that to Mike Miller, and he can send that out to all his connections. But uh, So anyone who wasn't here and you want to tell them about the podcast, they can listen to everything you just heard uh, tomorrow. Um, also, give it up for these panelists. 
as well as Troy, too. He's doing a great Thank job you, of this Troy. series. Yeah. Terrific. Nicely done, Troy. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank oh, you. Thanks. It's an honor. And, um, you know, just so you know, May 18th is, we're doing this again. This one is Prince. And uh, we're going to have a lot of people here to talk about Prince's legacy and all his iconic shows in Northeast Ohio. So thank you guys so much. Enjoy thank your you night. All. Thank you. Wonderstruck is coming to Cleveland. For this two-day music festival, see top artists including the Lumineers, Vampire Weekend, and more. Get your tickets now at wonderstruckfest.com.